Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here, as always, with Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, today we take as our point of departure a recent column that you had for Defining Ideas at Hoover entitled The Tar Pits Abroad. And this was a piece in which you were looking both at the past and the future of American interventions overseas. And I just want to start here with an observation that you make in the piece, which is that American military intervention in the post-Vietnam era tends to be characterized by a certain – I guess we could almost call it a lack of closure. We haven't had a lot of big treaty signings and, and dates that we can point to on the calendar where we say this is the day that the war ended. Uh, is that is that more of a reflection on the kinds of adversaries we've been fighting or is it a change in the American way of conducting warfare? Well, I, I think it's both, but in the old classical calculus of – existential wars you defeat it's very hard to exercise a level of violence so if we're going to go into libya we have to destroy if you go if your object in syria or libya you have to destroy the enemy and then force them to come to you and say okay i give up i, I say uncle and then you come in and create the situation where they're not capable of doing that again or hiroshima or something like Bella Wood or the Ardennes Offensive of World War I, but we, we don't quite finish it, and we're, we have this idea of proportional and disproportional violence, so we don't like to finish it. And then when we do finish it, whether it was Vietnam 75 or Iraq 2011, we're just not up to a, a 50-year Korea or Italy or Japanese or German occupation that's necessary to shepherd or even in the Balkans shepherd these people back to tranquility and stability. So my point in that piece was if we're not willing to do that um, and then we have all these zealots that want to go and, and intervene and then when these kids get in the streets of Baghdad and they say, well, my brilliant three-week war, my initial bombing is now your screwed up occupation. I bail on this. Well, those kids are still stuck there. So my complaint was really about the Iraq war for a new American century. The advocates of that war were bailing when it got really bad. And, of course, all the Democratic senators did too. But those kids were still stuck there. And they could win. They felt they could win. And they did win in the surge. And then we, we, we sort of double-crossed them again when we just yanked everybody out. If if that's sort of the weakness of the foreign policy elite, there's also a weakness in public opinion that you point out in this piece where you say that when a, when a military effort starts to stall in particular, uh, casualties, a high body count is the best predictor of how public sentiment is going to move. So you point here to the fact that George W. Bush got much more criticism for ending Saddam Hussein's reign of terror in Iraq than Barack Obama did for not ending Bashar al-Assad's in Syria simply because there weren't American casualties involved. And Victor, of course, this is this is understandable as an emotional impulse. No one wants to see the, the flag-draped coffins coming home. But as a strategic matter, I mean, is that a liability for the U.S. that this is such a pressure point with the public? Yeah, I think it is. The rule basically is that if you intervene in a non-extensional war, especially against non-Europeans, which are most wars – and you're going to have to win very rapidly and quickly, and you're going to have to show progress almost immediately. And if you don't, then the people who advocated the war will probably 
fluff off and it'll become a partisan issue and you'll be accused of war crimes or incompetence or too much barbarity or too little uh, serious, whatever it is. So there's a t- clock that ticks. And we were told, you know, after 9-11, well, that's not true anymore. We're over that. Uh, I don't think we are over that. I mean, we've lasted 17 years and 16 years in Afghanistan, but there's not much self-public support for it. We're not under Obama. We did not use the level of violence necessary to convince the enemy to cease and desist. So I, I think we better keep that in mind. If anybody wants to go in and send in a brigade of Marines to take out somebody, they better either take them out and leave, or they better use a level of violence to make sure that that the war is going to be over for you quickly. You mentioned just a moment ago that most of these modern conflicts are with non-Western parties, and there is a line in this column that you wrote where you're sort of laying out these different principles that foreign policymakers need to be conscious of. And one of them – I'll just read the topic sentence here, and I'll let you articulate the underlying logic. Fighting against Westerners is far easier. Why is that? Because they usually have a higher level of affluence and leisure, and they're much more – reluctant to lose that and when you go into the tribal middle east people have much less to you lose and so they're willing to fight a lot longer because death and destruction are not all that immune from their existence second is that uh there's an asymmetry in the way that the war is waged that they they don't have the technology and the capital so then they try to draw you in into landscapes that are more amenable to their way of war and that means usually uh Blurring the line between civilian and soldier or using IEDs rather than just say, here's an infantry division, come and get it. And you can really see, I mean, this is an age old, but when Hitler went into the backward areas, not European Russia, by the time he got way into the center of Russia, a lot of the Wehrmacht officers were stunned because they thought, you know, Leningrad would declare itself an open city the way that Paris or Amsterdam did. And they just walk in and take it. Or they thought that um, that you know two million Russians would just give up the way that uh, the French had given up, or that they'd say, "Wow, the Russian te- uh, air force is not as good as the French air force, and we beat it." But they didn't realize that after the famines and the purges, and life was so miserable, and people were so scared of an autocratic government that they they fought in a manner that Western Europeans had never encountered. In, in, in Russia, and the same thing is true. So we, we have to realize we're dealing with very desperate, poor people that are as fearful as their own government sometimes as they are of us. And if you're not willing to use a level of violence uh, as well as a, a carrot, it's not going to work. And, and unfortunately, it hasn't worked too well. We do pretty well outside of the Middle East. We went into Grenada quickly, solved the problem, went into Panama pretty quickly. We went into Serbia pretty quickly. Not very many casualties change the government. But once you get into that quagmire of the Middle East, I think it's a little different. So let me have you apply some of these principles that we've been discussing to some of the flashpoints at hand right now. And I'll start in Syria where since I think the last time we spoke, President Trump ordered 59 Tomahawk missiles launched at the airbase from which the Assad regime launched the chemical weapons attack. And, Victor, there were defenders – of the president who said this is exactly what you do to reinstate the deterrent effect that we lost when President Obama allowed the Syrians to cross the famous red line that he imposed supposedly on the use of chemical weapons. You also had on the other side some critics who said 
look, this is a little like President Clinton all over again. You lob in a couple of missiles. You call it a day. But in the long run, it's a pretty empty show of force. How do you think about how the president handled this situation? Well, I think he might have taken out not just one airfield, but maybe three or four just for tactical. And it's always a strategic lesson, but there's also a tactical when you use the mother of all bombs, so to speak, in Afghanistan, you don't just send a message, a message to subterranean enemies like North Korean installations or Iranian centrifuges. But you also try to wipe out the Taliban that are in the mountains. So when you just take out one airfield, you don't really – in 20 planes or how many – you don't really impair the ability to do it again. So I guess my answer is it's up in the air. It depends. In the case of Clinton, of course – when he sent Tomahawk missiles, that was it. He didn't ask for bin Laden to be extradited. In fact, he passed up an opportunity, and he didn't do much. But if they do it again, it'll be very incumbent upon Trump to use an overwhelming response the next time because they they still are, are coming out of eight years where red lines step over lines and deadlines didn't mean much. So I think it's we're waiting to see what they do and then if Trump escalates. So it'll be tit for tat. He's got sort of a whack-a-mole strategy. They just pick up their head, you slam it down, it's like mowing the lawn, and you don't get depressed that the grass still grows. It just grows. That's part of the job of being president. You just restore deterrence, but you don't put hundreds of thousands of people on the streets of Damascus or Benghazi or something. Let me have you weigh in on North Korea. President Trump's made it pretty clear that he's trying to persuade the Chinese to solve this problem before things spiral out of control. He's also made very clear, however, that America will address this problem on its own if it has to. And this strikes me as a pretty stark contrast with really, in a, in a sense, the last three administrations. The Clinton, Bush 43, and Obama administrations all seemed intent at various points on ratcheting down tensions with North Korea, even if that meant making pretty substantial concessions. Um, is Trump on better footing here? Yeah, I think he is. He's, he, I think everybody's learned from, from all of the false proclamations that they were denuclearizing that uh, Clinton made and then Obama made and then Bush sort of ignored because of Iraq. But essentially, if you're going to have sanctions, whether it's Iran or North Korea, you have to have sanctions. You can't say, well, they're eating grass or the Iranians don't have Advil in the store, so we better let up on them. And that's what we do. And then we, we they don't work. So if you're going to put sanctions on the North Koreans, put sanctions and expect people to eat grass, and then they're going to be desperate. And then there's only, as far as I know, there's only two other force, uh, sources of leverage against that nutty regime. If you're nutty and you have a nuke, you get deterrence. Pakistan, Iran, um, North Korea, and if you're nutty and you don't have a nuke like Omar Gaddafi yet, you try to get, you're going to be gone, and Saddam's going to get gone. So you have to be nutty, and you have to have a nuke, and then you say to the West, "We're crazy enough to trade one of our cities, one of your cities, for our whole country, and you won't do make that trade. So give us money or give us influence." But there's only the only thing we can do is basically one of two things: we use China, we try to say use leverage on trade or currency. And we say, your mad dog has cut off the leash. We kept our leashes on Japan and Taiwan. And so you've got to come in here and intervene. And then we have to ask, what's China's self-interest? Is it annoying us with North Korea and, and needling Japan? And, or is it 
wow, these guys are crazy, and if they let it all bomb, the wind might change and blow into our country, and they can do all sorts of damage to Chinese trade. So we have to make it clear that China could be hurt by playing this game with North Korea. And then the second is, the ultimate card is to say to China, you have a nuclear India, Pakistan, Russia, probably Iran on uh, your borders, and now you're just about ready to earn yourself a nuclear Taiwan, Japan, and South Korea. And that's a lot of variables for you to worry about because none of them are really going to point their nukes at us, maybe Russia and Iran, but we can handle that. But you can't handle all of those countries. And that's predicated on a lot of uh, wild cards. With the pu- You don't want to pu- push the public in Japan, for example, to say, hey, you should go nuclear. It's not in our interest necessarily. But that has to be a card that's played that tells China – we're going to let that decision be made by countries, including maybe even Australia. And it's up to you to deal with it because we're going to wash our hands if you don't control this this monstrous regime. Last thing that I'll ask you, Victor, when somebody listens to an analysis like what you've been giving us thus far, they quickly realize, I think, how difficult this business is. I mean, conducting warfare with the foresight and the discernment that you'd want from a statesman. Are there certain figures – in American history that you'd suggest that President Trump look to for inspiration as to how you do the commander-in-chief part of the job? Yeah, or you you look toward people in your own generation that know of that. So a guy like H.R. McMaster and James Mattis are widely read. They're combat veterans. They're familiar with military thinkers from Sun Tzu and Thucydides all the way up to the present. So you can draw on those people, but you can also look at people that have dealt with things even more challenging and, and, and it comes to mind somebody like Harry Truman. How do you how do you get yourself into a situation where your bet your biggest ally, Russia, in nineteen forty four that destroys the Wehrmacht in nineteen forty six is your biggest enemy? And then how do you get yourself into a propaganda quagmire where you're stuck <laughs> rebuilding the fascist and the Nazis, Germany, Italy and Japan that everybody hates and the Soviet Union flips around and says, oh, we're still fighting the liberation of World War II. We're helping the Vietnamese and the Thais and the Koreans get rid of their colonial masters and our former allies, the British and the Americans, join the fascists and they're on the side of Germany and and Japan and they don't care about national liberation. That was a really tough debacle and yet Truman crafted the foundations of containment. And uh, so that's something to learn from a president like that. John Kennedy did okay with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, Bush's uh, challenge with the surge was pretty good. He really rose to the – so there, I think he should look at those occasions. But he's got very good advisors. I can't think of any other Republican president that would have brought into office Generals Kelly, uh, McMaster, Mattis, and uh, – sessions at justice and tillerson i think most people would say well wow there are too many generals or wow this guy's a ceo or wow sessions is a ideal but usually we would have staffed all those positions with apparatchiks from the beltway and we didn't do it so he's, he's got an advantage there all right thanks for listening to the classicist podcast we'll be back soon with another episode until then stop by defining ideas at hoover.org to read more of victor's commentary for victor davis hansen i'm troy Senek. thanks for listening this podcast has been a production of the hoover institution for more information about our work please visit hoover.org